Yeah, you're now being recorded. So, okay, great pleasure to welcome Robert Ash, who's going to talk to us talk to us about Lionel Johnson. Now, Lionel Johnson has haunted Robert's life for the last twenty years, mm. in the same way that Olive Custance has haunted my life for the last five years. Mm. <clears throat> but with but like with any other kind of um, obsession, the best way to get it off your chest is to talk about it. <laughs> publish a book. So, or publish a book about it. So, so in a way, it's like having a baby. And, and Robert and I are both now at this point where we're, we're just in our labor pangs. <laughs> uh, is, but Robert's, Robert's about to bring out a book very, 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 very soon on Lionel Johnson, his poetry and his life. Is it possible to, uh, to paste something up on the, the board for everyone to see here or not? If you do, if you press share, can you see share at the bottom of your screen? I see what, share screen? Yeah, have you got a cover already? Yeah, although I don't know whether it's going to be, I mean, this is going to be a plate, it's going to be a plate on the book for sure. It, it, it might be the, the dust wrapper. Um, so it says, host Have you got a date yet? Have you got a date yet from Tom? It'll be this month sometime. Um, host disabled participant screen sharing, it says. Oh. Oh. Do that meeting setting. Just a second. Maybe I can. I have now enabled screen sharing. Let's give it a try. Ah, okay. Can you see the screen now? So this well, is it. Can you see that or not? No, is we can see your face. Only my face. Just a moment. You might need to. Maybe you have to go out and go in again. Hang on. That's curious. Okay. Worry about it. Oh, I see. I see. I think I know it is. Anthony's back again. He's giving us a big smile because that, is he's that, probably. Can you see oh, that? There oh, go. yes, yes. Lionel yeah. Johnson, poetry and prose, Edward oh. Robert Ash. That is a lovely cover. It's a Daniel Mitsui. The the uh, exciting new, uh, well, recent um, Japanese American artist. Wow, fantastic. That's lo congratulations, Robert. That's, yeah. that's great. There, there, aren't, there aren't very many photos of Johnson extant, so um, it's uh, a substantial... Is that a, re is that a reconstruction? Yeah, it's a, well, it's, it's a composite. It's based on a number of other images. Mm. So, um, let me see. Uh, screen sharing has stopped. Oh, that's wonderful. That goes. Now, um, how do I... Okay. Uh, as, as I begin, um, let me first ask uh, how many people today here, here at the uh, conference, um, other than, well, I know, I know Ferdy and Anthony know about Lionel Johnson, but how many other people know anything here about Lionel Johnson? Has anyone at all? Anyone heard of him? Yes. Oh, it's a wonderful book about him, of his works. A marvellous yeah. introduction. Oh, that incurable. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Very good. Yes. I was going. I was going to. That's just come out, hasn't it, Julie? Just That's recently. right. Yes. I was at the launch. I was at the book launch in London for that. Right. Oh. Yes. Do you, do you, do you know that? Is it, it was a lady who wrote it, wasn't it? Yes, Nina Antonia. Yes. Yes. Do you, do you know her? Um, I only met her on one occasion. Mm. I've mm. corresponded with her about uh, other things. <laughs> but um. Well, maybe, maybe maybe we can talk about your impressions of the book and of the, the etc after robert's talk 
that would be very interesting. So um, it's in a way it's uh, just as well that you mentioned that because um, I was going to say that uh, this, this talk I'm going to give today is about Johnson as a decadent. Um, and in a way it's, it's, uh, it's a slightly misleading epithet for Johnson. Uh, Johnson's generally classified as a decadent, but in many ways he wasn't really a decadent at all. Um, and this misclassification is one of several reasons why Johnson was largely overlooked or forgotten. He sort of falls between two stools. Catholic critics tended to think of him as a decadent. And until recently, most Catholic critics weren't interested in addressing the decadence. Um, and decadent critics tend to think of Johnson as, as rather, or, or people interested in the decadence tend to think of him as, as rather, rather Catholic, maybe too Catholic for their taste. So, um, but there are sort of dual aspects of many of the characteristic writers of the decadence uh, in England or in Britain. Um, and um, two of them uh, we've come across today already, uh, Oscar Wilde and, and Walter Pater, for example. Um, Wilde in his early phase, uh, which is to say until about 1889 or thereabouts, when he first becomes very famous, when he goes to the United States and declares that he's disappointed in the Atlantic Ocean and all this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> sort of jolly aesthete, you know, he's a very, very entertaining, charming man, quite, quite harmless. Um, and uh, mostly writing essays at that stage and, and poems which were not particularly favorably reviewed. Um, then the last phase of Wilde's career in the 1890s uh, is the period of most of his, his best works, and, and at the same time, it's a period in which his image darkens considerably, and it's associated with the decadence and, of course, the great scandal of the, uh, um, the Douglas trials and so on, and the imprisonment. Um, Pater, again, Pater's first book uh, on the Renaissance, it's his first book, is the book most people remember Pater for, um, and uh, it's actually a rather peculiar book because uh, Pater's point of view changed uh, very substantially not long after he published the Renaissance. Uh, he came under the influence of Newman, um, for instance, um, and, and Hopkins. Hopkins had uh, been ordained at that stage, and he, he had earlier been a pupil of Pater's, and they were friends. And when uh, Hopkins was assigned to St. Aloysius uh, in the 1880s, he and Pater spent a lot of time together shortly before Pater began to work on Marius the Epicurean, and almost certainly discussed Newman uh, at great length. Uh, and most of Pater's later work is morally much more serious and, and uh, is much more favorably disposed to Christianity than the Renaissance, which is, is, is really quite, quite shocking if you expect a, 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 an author favorable to Christianity in, in the analysis of some of these late medieval figures and early Renaissance figures. Uh, so in the same sort of way, Johnson is, um, you know, there's a, there is a decadent aspect to Johnson, and this is the only aspect which has been of general interest to critics hitherto, uh, since Johnson's death. But in Johnson's day, Johnson wasn't even regarded as a decadent particularly. Um, and uh, uh, the other problem is that Johnson is usually regarded as a sort of um, accessory to the 1890s. So people often think of Oscar Wilde and people like, well, and Beardsley, uh, particularly those two, and then people like Dawson and Johnson and so on, and sort of hovering about the like satellites to the great planets of the decadence. Um, and in actual fact, uh, Johnson, this might be true of Dawson to some extent, but it's not really true of Johnson. 
Johnson isn't even really a, a minor figure, I, I don't think. Um, he's a tragic figure. He was, his, his life was cut short. Had Johnson lived any decent length of time, uh, his career would have coincided with Elliot and Pound, for example. And uh, in fact, friends of Johnson's like Bernard Berenson and uh, uh, George Santayana died in the 1950s, to give you some indication. Johnson died in 1902. Uh, so um, this tragic demise uh, and the reasons behind it are closely connected to the, um, the role that's been assigned to Johnson and also perhaps most importantly, the fact that his, uh, he was such a good friend of W.B. Yeats and it was Yeats who created a sort of Johnson myth in his autobiography. Uh, Johnson f features very prominently in Yeats's uh, so-called autobiographies. Um, and uh, Yeats mythologized Johnson as Yeats was wont to mythologize everything. Uh, so uh, he's actually the, the capital influence on Yeats in the period when Yeats emerges as a great poet in the 1890s. So Yeats's second volume of poetry, The Rose, is dedicated to Johnson, 1893. First volume of poetry that Yeats published, I can't remember the name of the thing now, is, is, is a very slight affair. Uh, in addition to one or two really splendid poems like Down by the Sally Gardens, the poetry in that first volume is, is not very substantial. Uh, it's in, in no way visibly the, uh, the poetry of a major poet. Uh, but by the second volume, Yeats is coming into his own. And Yeats has already uh, apprenticed himself to Johnson and Dowson, as he himself describes um, in, uh, in one of his, uh, his poems. I think it's The Grey Rock. Just a moment, I'll find it for you. Um, in Responsibilities, 1914. Uh, Yeats writes, um, where is it now? Uh, yes, here it is. Poets with whom I learned my trade, companions of the Cheshire cheese. And then later on he writes of, um, yes, uh, uh, he writes of um, uh, Johnson and Dowson in particular being uh, authors who, who taught him his trade. Uh, and in, in later life, uh, there's a uh, an especially well-known poem of um, or a better better known poem of, of Yeats, uh, in which he, um, in memory of Major Robert Gregory, uh, in which he invokes the um, the names of friends of his uh, who um, who he would have invited to his housewarming had they had they been alive, but but alas, they're dead, and so he invokes them one after another to make them present. Um, including John Millington Singh, for example, but it's, it's Johnson whom he invokes first. And he says, uh, Lionel Johnson comes the first to mind that loved his learning better than mankind. Though courteous to the worst, much falling, he brooded upon sanctity till all his Greek and Latin learning seemed a long blast upon the horn that brought a little nearer to his thought, a measureless consummation that he dreamed. And um, again, rather like uh, Custance vis-a-vis Lord Alfred Douglas and Douglas himself in relation to Wilde, Johnson is generally seen as a sort of, um, uh, as the property of Yeats scholars. Uh, he is an influence on Yeats, but that influence has to be contained uh, because otherwise uh, he ceases to be an influence and becomes um, a kind of equal in the drama, and that's, that's undesirable. So uh, the... Um, 
the fact is that most people haven't read much Johnson uh, recently, or, or indeed since, since probably since the Edwardian period. Uh, and so he, he has he's found a particular sort of niche uh, as a result of Yeats and also as a result of uh, Ian Fletcher, who's the most important critic uh, who edited Johnson and kind of worked on Johnson and uh, uh, preserved his critical reputation. Um, and uh, Fletcher's work, uh, in some respects, um, exorcised some of Yeats's uh, uh, fabrications or exaggerations, um, but in other respects, uh, emphasized them. Um, so briefly, the, the story of Johnson the Decadent uh, is this. Johnson was um, a very frail, uh, very small uh, man, uh, young man, um, who, who was, I think, five foot two uh, and physically very frail. He came from a military family. Two of his brothers and his father were all soldiers. Uh, he obviously wasn't. Um, he was extremely um, precocious uh, intellectually. Uh, he was a great scholar at Winchester College um, and then quite celebrated in the Oxford of the 1880s. Um, and uh, he, he became an alcoholic, unfortunately, quite young. Uh, the reasons for this are probably um, uh, above all uh, that he had a very frail constitution and was an insomniac quite young. He seems to have been prescribed alcohol at Oxford by his doctor as a cure for insomnia um, and took to it. <laughs> uh, the insomnia remained and the alcohol did as well uh, and eventually spiraled out of control. It's also the case that Johnson was um, homosexual, although exactly, exactly in what sense is, is, is actually a disputed point now amongst those few people who bother to study Johnson. But the, uh, the general understanding was that uh, the, the mythical version of Johnson, which has been promoted essentially through the 1950s by Ian Fletcher and his followers, um, is that uh, Johnson uh, wasn't able to cope with life. He took to alcohol. He became an addict. He never developed emotionally. He remained locked into a sort of um, emotion, uh, immature sexuality. Uh, don't forget, this is a pre-1970s, 80s analysis of homosexual behavior, um, that uh, as a result, he turned in on himself more and more and sought uh, solace in uh, either illusory aesthetic comforts like Roman Catholicism or, and or alcohol, and eventually effectively destroyed himself, drank himself to death. Uh, Fletcher's original view um, is actually quite like um, that uh, phrase that Joseph Pierce mentioned earlier today, uh, I can't remember who it was who used it of Oscar Wilde, the sort of long glorious suicide or whatever it is. This is the idea that I think people, that, that Fletcher certainly initially promoted, that Johnson essentially deliberately withdrew from society by about 1895, isolated himself in his rooms and drank himself slowly to death. This isn't in fact true um, at all. I mean, it, it, there, there's an element of truth to it. Uh, there are elements but it's a grotesque exaggeration of the truth. Um, so uh, the truth is uh, that um, uh, Johnson did in fact um, suffer from same-sex attraction as a schoolboy, that much we can say, probably through Oxford, as for example, did Evelyn Waugh. Waugh was a very active homosexual, I think, until he left Oxford and then he became a fairly active heterosexual and was turned upon by his former associates by many of them in any case. I think that, that was true of Cyril Connolly also. 
um, became very much a womanizer as, as an adult, but uh, as a young man, as, a, as an adolescent and a young man, was very much a, a same-sex oriented. So in Johnson's um, correspondence and in some of the poems uh, from this early period, we find a, a, a romantic idealism of uh, young men, um, obviously a certain physical attraction evinced in some of the poems. Beyond that, there's almost no evidence of anything at all. Uh, so, for example, the, the key addition uh, in dealing with jo the, uh, Johnson and his reputation is this 1950, I think it's four, uh, edition of, uh, by Ian Fletcher of uh, the Complete Poems, which is still the only really widely consulted volume. There was a, um, a biography of uh, Oscar Wilde, which was released, I think, two years ago by a man named Matthew Sturgis, which received rave reviews as the book of the decade. In fact, it was described, I think, as by the Sunday Times. Um, and uh, I consulted the bibliography to see what they had on Johnson, um, because after all, Johnson introduced Douglas to Wilde, so presumably they must have had something on him, uh, especially as the date in which this introduction was effected is disputed, and I thought perhaps he could at least resolve this for me. Uh, and uh, it turns out that the only reference in the bibliography is to this 1950s edition, which was actually superseded um, by the same critics 1982 edition. Uh, which has a much more reliable introduction as well as a completer edition of the poems. But he hadn't consulted the 1982 edition, even though it's available at every <laughs> important library, including the British Library, uh, by the way. Um, he didn't even mention it. Uh, in fact, in, in one of his books, uh, Sturgis says something like, uh, information on Lionel Johnson is quite hard to come by. Um, and uh, uh, he then goes on to say that anything written by Ian Fletcher is worth reading. And yet he doesn't mention the fact that Fletcher himself wrote a, uh, a more recent introduction to Johnson's life and, and work than the one he refers to as the only thing that one can actually get. So it's, one, one, one encounters this kind of sloppiness frequently um, in critical literature dealing with people like this. You, you wouldn't get away with this if you were writing about Yeats or Shakespeare, for instance, because the, um, the academic milieu is too crowded with, with uh, you know, with scholars and with and with people eager to tear each other apart. Um, but in these circles, 50% um, of those writing about these authors are amateurs. And and Nina, um, for example, Antonia, who's been very friendly to me, um, is, is an amateur. And she gets quite a number of things wrong in her edition um, about Johnson. She, she also treats Johnson as though Johnson was the figure represented by Fletcher and Yeats. And it's, it's not true. Um, demonstrably so, demonstrably so. Uh, one, one simple illustration of this, you notice that on the cover of her book, there is a photo of Johnson at Winchester. So th this is a perpetuation of this myth, you know, that Johnson was this sort of forever, this, uh, this uh, adolescent, essentially, adolescent personality, he died at 35. Um, so uh, let me show you, for instance, um, a couple of uh, images which should, should indicate how how um, distorted this is really. Um, so here is, uh, let's try to share this, okay. Here is Johnson at, at Oxford, for instance, looking much less childlike than he does on the cover of Incurable. Uh, it's, been beauti it's beautifully colorized, isn't it? Yes, yes. Interesting. Mm. And he's still young, of course, but he's not 17 as he is on the cover of the book. Mm. Um, and uh, there's another um, image, just a moment, I can show you. Um, here we are, here's a drawing of him by 
John Ellis, who is a friend of Yates. Um, let's see, where is this? It's disappeared now, just a moment. Um, how do I do this? They're very good at colorizing things now. Uh, just a moment. Um, share screen. I'm, I wish I were better at manipulating this technology than I am, but I... No, you're doing very well. Um, uh, you, can, you, can you see this? Uh, yeah, but I expect it's coming in a minute. I don't know that it is actually, just a moment. Um, let's, let me try to close this and try it again. Because your image now is, is, has, has shrunk. Um, well, uh, you, I've got it, I've got it. Share, share, share. share. I have it, all right. Um, here we are. Still nothing. That's okay. I think I think I know. What I'm I'm going to do this time. I hope. Katarina's thinking these amateurs. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, most likely. Um, <laughs> no, I was always the worst on these things. Ah, got it. Okay. So there's there's a drawing of John. By a fellow of the fellow poet at the Rama Club from the 1890s, and so, and so there are there are images of Johnson which are not um, this replication of this idea of this uh, this this 17-year-old, and and the idea of the 17-year-old is connected to this the, the rather sort of preternatural dimension. This 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 boy who was so small and so youthful-looking that even in his 20s and perhaps even early 30s, uh, people who didn't who first met him mistook for a for the child of, of, of one of the people they were visiting uh, until he spoke and uh, his articulacy and erudition were such as to, to shock uh, those he was speaking to and there's a sort of almost preternatural uh, uh, image which is conveyed of someone abnormally um, gifted and intelligent for a you know for a child like a sort of a I suppose so but you, you might, might you not say also the fact that his his image there this this kind of very very kind of pointy face yeah. you know and he's only five foot two that you know I'm sorry if it sounds a bit Freudian but I mean somebody with that kind of physiognomy their life will sort, of, sort of finish when they're about 17. <laughs> Perhaps but in any case the the <laughs> the, 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 um, the main point I'm driving at is that the the idea that Johnson was a sort of um, a sort of you know like a, I think he was described by Alice Minnell, the uh, well-known uh, Catholic poet of the 1890s and 1900s, uh, who ran a uh, literary salon, quite a famous one, as the changeling, you know, a sort of a fairy child exchanged for a real one. Um, so this the, the the idea that there was somehow something abnormally uh, ab abnormal about him, abnormal and 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 locked forever in a sort of um, uh, impossibly gifted childhood uh, mm. is is a myth. I mean, it's a myth based on on elements of truth, but it's a myth. Um, so uh, the um, these myths uh, have disguised the fact that um, Johnson's interests are, are uh, far more substantial. Uh, so, for example, T. S. Eliot said of of him, and we only know this about Eliot, for instance. Um, because Eliot's correspondence is being published year by year now uh, in many volumes. I think they've got up to volume eight, but none of this material was available even sort of 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, so in, I think, volume six or seven of Eliot's collected correspondence, 
we find that Johnson, uh, Eliot refers to Johnson um, in a letter to a, a man who had sent him some of Johnson's correspondence for publication in the Criterion. Uh, and Eliot wrote um, uh, to this man, man named Manning, uh, Johnson is a writer for whom I have a deep respect with all the faults of writing which he has as a writer of that epoch. He is one of its most dignified figures and he ought to be more studied than he is. Um, which is quite high praise from Eliot, who is generally fairly stinting in praise, except perhaps towards some of his great, great favorites. Uh, so, um, so I'm going to look uh, at least to some extent at uh, aspects of the decadence in Johnson, because after all, we're dealing with the sort of decadent, a decadent period here. Uh, we've addressed the question of decadence. But I'd also like to uh, indicate why Johnson's much more interesting than that, and that looking at Johnson as a decadent writer, in fact, circumscribes his achievement very radically uh, and makes him a much less interesting figure, as well as, as the fact that it keeps him as a sort of mythologized, distorted version of who he really was. Um, so uh, let me see. Um, yeah. Uh, let me begin by, by making a fairly bold claim for Johnson. I, I, would, I would dare to say that Johnson is at least plausibly uh, the outstanding poet critic between Matthew Arnold and T.S. Eliot in English. Um, at the time of his unexpected and somewhat mysterious death at 35 in 1902, Lionel Johnson was regarded by his peers as one of the most important men of letters in England. In spite of the vast social and literary changes soon to sweep through the Western world, he remained well known until the Second World War and retained the admiration of, amongst others, the capital poets of modernism. That, that in, you know, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, and, and W.B. Yeats were all admirers of Johnson, for example. Uh, but by the 1950s, with the full establishment of a new order of culture, Johnson had all but been forgotten, uh, relegated to a bit part in the 1890s, a period largely disdained by 20th century criticism. As a minor poet whose enduring claim to fame was that he introduced Oscar Wilde to Lord Alfred Douglas. Uh, there, there are quite a number of uh, myths about Johnson, by the way, and one of them is that he was a cousin of Douglas's. You, you see that turn up periodically. I can't remember now whether Nina repeats it or not, but it's not true. Johnson was unrelated to Douglas. Uh, yet this was a man who exerted a permanent influence on W.B. Yeats and who was described by so stinting a critic as, as, as Repound as the author of, quote, poems as beautiful as any in English, unquote. I first encountered Johnson's work at the University of Toronto in the late 1980s. He was not on any syllabus, but the extensive stacks of Robart's library were open to us late into the night, uh, the English literature section arranged in chronological periods. The Victorian age held, as it continues to do, a peculiar fascination for me. And it was here that I first happened upon the poets of the fin de siècle, specifically um, Penguin's Poetry of the 1890s, uh, Carcanet's Arthur Simmons Anthology, and three poets of the Rhymers Club, Dawson, Johnson, and Davidson, who was mentioned, I think, by you, Ferdy, in... Uh, the Olive Custance talk, John Davidson. Um, here was a poetry unique in my experience. It inhabited a vanished world of handsome cabs, gas lamps, and music halls, of sin and spiritual redemption, in form and vocabulary simultaneously traditional and yet singularly anticipatory of the moderns. I believe even in that earliest encounter, it was Johnson who made the deepest impression upon me. And yet I was struck by the fact that it was he, amongst these tragic and shadowy figures, about whom the least was known. There were few photos, no portraits. There's no painting of Johnson known to exist. Um, 
no biography at that time. The, the only biography of Johnson that was ever published was released, I think, eight years ago. Uh, no satisfactory collection of letters and the cause and circumstances of Johnson's death were disputed. So, for example, if you turn um, to uh, Wikipedia, of course, that source of all, all true knowledge, um, you'll find that they specifically deny the real way in which Johnson died, which is very bizarre. Um, let me see whether we can find it. Uh, just a moment. If you, 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 can, you, can edit, you can edit this yourself. I know, I know. I, have, I, don't, I don't refer to your own book. <laughs> when it comes up. Um, yeah. Let's see, Lionel Johnson. I think Lionel Johnson's probably best known right now because there's a character in Warhammer named after him. Uh, let's see. I, I, I've edited the... Uh, I'm responsible for most of the Wikipedia page on Olive Custons. Ah. <laughs> um, okay, well, they, they don't deny it as, as blatantly as they used to, but they're still actually... Um, uh, in partial denial. So let me see. Uh, where is it now? Where is it? Here it is. Okay. Can you see this, all of you? Yeah. Yes or no? Is it visible? Yes, 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 okay. yes. So it says, Johnson lived a solitary life in London. It's at the top of the page. Struggling with alcoholism and repressed homosexuality. Died of a stroke in 1902, either after a fall in the street or a fall from a bar stool in the Green Dragon on Fleet Street. He died after the fall in the Green Dragon, not in the street. There's no question about it at all. Um, we have the, uh, the deposition uh, of, and the autopsy and so forth, and even the description of the publican in whose uh, inn he collapsed. So it's, uh, I don't know why they have this as, as the, these, this information is all now um, available to the general public, although it's probably not that easy to get hold of. In any case, so uh, I'm still sharing the screen, I suppose. So how do you unshare? Uh, let's see, bother, um, just a moment, this is ridiculous, I don't know how to handle this thing, uh, no, sorry, uh, help, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to, how to restore the, uh, the screen that we had originally, oh, botheration. Um, for Bath Stool or the other one I've heard here is run over by a handsome cab. Yes, that's right. That's the story, but it's untrue. Um, right, it's <laughs> indeed. Um, hang on. Since you can see my screen, could anyone suggest what button I should push? Uh, well, if you want to share a screen, you have to click Alt I, plus S, yes? So I, want to, I, I want to unshare screen, but to restore the large um, but I think you, you can just click it again. No? Now it's just changing from one person to another. Just a moment. Uh, okay, well, that'll do, I suppose. This, this is all right. Okay. Um, anyway. Uh, can you still see my screen or not? Yes. yes. Ah, so how do I unshare? Well, if you move your mouse down. Yeah. Can you see the green? It's no. green, you know? It no, says no. share screen. No. Nothing, no? Nothing, nothing. Then I don't know. <laughs> Ready? Any idea? Ah, oh, this is ghastly. <laughs> this is so annoying. Um, 
Hang on, I'm gonna try one more thing. Oh, you? Well, no, no, now you? Oh, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Now you're um. What's happening now? I don't know, but <laughs> if I if I uh, gosh, how do you do this? Yeah. I, I'm hearing an echo, but I'm still seeing the same same screen, and I think you're still seeing my screen. Um, let's see. Stop video. Right, you are sharing with us. I know. I don't want to be anymore. Um, You're sharing another thing now about uh, my primary academic research interests. Yeah, yeah, but don't. Okay, you can. You know, Edward sees a blog spot. We don't want to hear all that. No, we see all your other junk. Be careful, otherwise we we'll read all your emails. There are, there's nothing specially to read on this, but the, the main thing is just how do I how do I withdraw from sharing the screen? Well, it says partage écran or share screen at the bottom. It doesn't. You, you, well, click into it the did, middle of your. It did screen. before, but it doesn't click anymore. Click into the middle of your screen. Okay. And then it might wake up the bottom of the screen. No, it's not doing. It. What if I? Okay. Well, I can I can do this. I can. What I can do is I, I can withdraw the permission from you to share yeah. the screen. Okay. And then and then it it'll it'll actually it'll just disappear. All of a ah, yeah. back to normal now. Great, thank you. Okay. Well, I've given you back the permission okay, now. I'm not going to share again. That, that's I've, what... given, I've given you back the permission, but I've taken it away. Okay, thank you. So um, that was disconcerting. All right. Um, so now you can uh, hear the Angelus of Chavagna ringing. Yes, indeed. Um, now, uh, let me see, where was I? Yeah, he was, he was also a man of many parts. He was clearly a remarkable personality in an age of great personalities and a critic of considerable distinction. It was at this point already that I conceived a desire to hold within my hands a volume containing his finest work in poetry and prose with an accurate account of his life and career. Lionel Johnson was born on the 15th of March, 1867 in Broadstairs, Kent, to a high Anglican military family of Anglo-Welsh ancestry. There was an Irish branch, branch of the family which had been established by his great-grandfather who had helped to crush the Great Rebellion of 1798. His family spent their summer holidays in Wales, which made an indelible impression upon the young boy, who began to see himself as a Celt. In this phase, it was his Welsh ancestry which was predominant in his imagination. After his conversion, this facilitated his identification with the Irish. In 1880, he was sent to Winchester College, where he soon acquired a legendary reputation for his brilliance, seemingly limitless erudition, arrested, arresting intellectual maturity and eccentricity. Johnson was a small and nervous boy who had suffered from insomnia even in early childhood. And at, <coughs> and at Winchester, he took to surreptitious nocturnal strolls outside the college grounds. Sport aside, he took a very active role in the life of the school, debating, acting, and editing the college magazine. But despite being very affectionate, as is evidenced in some of his letters, he had difficulty expressing his emotions in person. And perhaps for this reason, he was seen as aloof and lonely. Although he formed two or three lifelong friendships, most especially with Campbell Dodgson, later to be a distinguished art critic, and Frank Russell, the so-called Mad Earl, Bertrand Russell's older brother, uh, from about his 16th year, it is clear that he was going through a phase of emotional and religious disorientation and searching. Youthful letters and poems reveal homoerotic tendencies and romantic friendships though there is no hard evidence that these were ever consummated. Again, in the case of Fletcher, 
he he wrote that Johnson was the leader of a homosexual clique at Winchester. Um, and then in the more recent edition, he removed that sentence because he found it wasn't, there was no evidence for it. Um, but it's the original introduction which most people know, and so they think that that's in fact what you see at Winchester, but that there isn't any evidence of it at all. At least none that we've uh, we've come to, to, to possess. Um, so, um, let me see, uh, where are we? Ah, yes, sorry, skipped the page there. Um, uh, yes, he abandoned um, the high and dry Anglicanism of his school and household and went through phases of agnostic Anglo-Catholicism, theosophy and Buddhism. He eventually rejected Buddhism because he felt it to be both alien to the Western tradition and fundamentally an inhuman creed which had little of substance to offer the common man. Um, let's see. Uh, he was clearly attracted to Roman Catholicism at this stage, but with, throughout his Winchester career, his religious position remained unsettled. In 1886, having carried off virtually every literary prize that Winchester had to offer, and having carried on a correspondence with Walt Whitman, he went up to Oxford to read greats at New College. Johnson came into his own at Oxford, forming important friendships with Walter Pater, Ernest Dowson, Lord Alfred Douglas, George Santayana, and Oscar Wilde. Further acquaintances included Bernard Berenson, A.E. Taylor, the um, uh, idealist philosopher and Plato scholar, Lawrence Binion, and Frederick Kenyon. His insomnia continued, however, and the doctor prescribed whiskey to overcome it, tragically unlocking the door of the, to the alcoholism which was later to take his life. Uh, Lionel Johnson has long been identified with the English decadent movement of the 1890s. While this is an overstatement at best, there was a period in which Johnson could be legitimately identified as a decadent, uh, or rather if there was, I should say. It was in these years at Oxford and maybe just into his London career. The drinking steadily increased, as did the irregularity of his habits, briefly jeopardizing his academic career. If Johnson was ever an active homosexual and internal evidence suggests that he was, then it can only be reliably traced to his Oxford days, and perhaps the first year or two in London. The only person with whom we have some evidence of a liaison is Douglas. At this point, Johnson was intellectually gravitating towards Catholicism, but his lifestyle remained an obstacle. And again, with regards to evidence and so on, it's worth pointing out that, um, again, because uh, of uh, misstatements in some writings about Johnson, uh, it's believed uh, by some, that Johnson had an affair with Douglas at Winchester. In fact, Johnson and Douglas did not know each other at Winchester. Uh, Johnson was three years older than Douglas. Johnson had one memory of Douglas being caned at Winchester, and otherwise they didn't meet. Um, so, uh, and meeting would have been virtually impossible in that sort of age disparity, especially given their, their respective habits. Uh, but he certainly knew Johnson, uh, Douglas at Oxford, spent a great deal of time with him there, and uh, I think I think it's probable that there was a brief affair, um, but if there was, there is no other evidence I've ever come across linking Johnson in that in that way with any specific person. So the idea that Johnson was in some sense typical of, let's say, the wild underworld, isn't true um, at all. In that sense, um, in terms of his sympathies or his uh, suasions and so on, that's a different matter. Um, so, uh, let's see, um, in 1890, Johnson received a first in greats and moved to London, where he was welcomed into the house at White Ladies, an arts and crafts community, 
which produced the influential Hobby Horse Journal and much else besides. Uh, at this stage, he was extremely prolific, both as a poet and as a journalist, writing for the Yellow Book and the Savoy, among other journals, and quickly establishing a reputation for himself at the heart of literary the literary activity of the 90s. Along with Yeats and Dalson, he was a founding member of the Rhymers Club. His influence on Yeats in particular was profound and lasting, and the Irish poet was later to immortalize him in his autobiography uh, and in a couple of poems. Yeats, for his part, won his new friend and mentor over to the cause of Ireland, and Johnson came increasingly to espouse the cause of Irish independence and throw himself into the activities of the Irish literary renaissance. And they came to regard him as one of their own, by the way. So you'll find that in uh, Irish literary circles circa sort of 1898 to 1910, Lionel Johnson is generally regarded by other Irish authors as being an Irish figure, uh, interestingly enough. Um, uh, it's one of the casualties, I think, of Irish independence and the, the route it's taken, that people who don't easily place in, in today's context as Irish have been sort of retrospectively faded out a little bit unless they're of the first sort of the first importance like Wilde or, I mean, Congreve is often called an Irish writer and he was nothing of the kind. It was, I think he was born in, born in Ireland of, of, of English parents and then went back to England or maybe even not, not born, like moved to England when he was young um, and so on. So but there's no reason if one believes that Congreve or Swift were Irish that Johnson couldn't be Irish. Uh, but in any case, such is the way people read these things. Um, uh, let's see, yes. But the most significant event of this period from Johnson's point of view was, without doubt, his reception into the Catholic Church, which took place at St. Ethelreda's on St. Albans Day, 1891, when he was confirmed by Cardinal Manning. This makes Johnson the first of the remarkable list of converts to Catholicism of that famous decade. Uh, with the two exceptions of Baron Corvo and John Gray, but Gray lapsed almost immediately after he converted and then, and then reverted about four years later. Um, and, and Corvo, quite apart from his other problems, uh, didn't, didn't write initially after his conversion for a number of years. So he wasn't really a writer at the time of his conversion. Um, so of the, of those I turn the light on too. Oh, no, I'm fine. You turn it on. Tell me to turn it on when well, you yeah. And Gray went to seminary three or four months after his reversion. Couldn't do that now. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, this makes Johnson the first of the remarkable list of converts to Catholicism of that famous decade. Uh, and in fact, the first uh, well-known writer to convert in England in close to 25 years. So mm. it was, uh, it was, it was a, a significant little event um, in the uh, Catholic uh, community. Um, the reasons for Johnson's conversion were complex and naturally dependent on many personal suasions, but several objective points stand out. He had always a great devotion to the person of Christ. It's obvious from his uh, Winchester correspondence, which has survived, even when he was in his agnostic or Buddhist phase, he still revered Christ. Um, he took little from the religious instruction at Winchester or Oxford, but the impact of the Catholicity, which had founded and sustained his Alme Matres, was deep and lasting so too that of the proto-Christian Greek and Latin masters uh, that he studied, that is to say, um, the classics. His knowledge of the fathers was profound, as was his admiration of St. Augustine. He also loved Pascal, but perhaps the capital influences on his conversion were Peter's Marius the Epicurean, and above all the writings of Cardinal Newman, his favorite exemplary author. 
Paradoxically, Gibbon also played a part, his decline and fall of the Roman Empire bearing witness to the tremendous historical reality of the church. In many ways, Johnson's conversion and intellectual development bear remarkable resemblance to those of Christopher Dawson, with whom he has much in common. Both were Wickhamists of high Anglican Anglo-Welsh military families and had Pater, Newman and Augustine as influences central to their intellectual development. Where they most differ is on an emotional level and in the urgent sense of sin and the need for redemption, which communicates itself in Johnson's writings. From the time of his conversion, Lionel Johnson became an active man. In, in that respect, it's worth pausing for a second, actually. In that respect, the decadent dimension in Johnson is, is particularly, let's say, present, because Johnson's sense of, uh, presumably most of you have read Bryant's Head Revisited, I suppose, have you at one stage or another? Well, there's a, there's a, a, a passage, quite a, a striking passage near the end, where um, uh, Cordelia comes back from the Spanish Civil War and, and Charles is already with uh, Julia and Cordelia invites him to come out and talk about Sebastian, whom she's seen. And she talks about how, how powerless he is, how incapable of exercising his will because of his alcoholism. And one, she says something to the effect that one, one can't imagine um, how, how it feels to be, to be so, so bereft of, of dignity, so, so powerless. For example, um, so unable to, uh, to 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 make meaningful decisions and so forth because of his his cripple his crippling alcoholism. So Johnson evinces this occasionally. Um, he obviously felt this increasingly as his alcoholism took hold, uh, and he was more and more aware of uh, how much he needed uh, God's grace and forgiveness. And also, of course, his although he he appears to have led a chaste life after his conversion. Um, he was obviously aware of uh, certain aspects of uh, the, the seriousness and ugliness of, um, you know, well, of, of, of sexual misconduct and, and also of the church's teaching on homosexuality. So he was very, he was very keenly aware of the, of, of the sense of sin. It's very present in, in here and there in some of, some of his most famous poems, some of his most memorable poems. Um, and uh, one can identify that as a decadent element in Johnson, in the sense that it's characteristic, this, this emphasis is characteristic of the decadent uh, writers, uh, as in the case of Francis Thompson, for example, with The Hound of Heaven and so on, there's something, something very similar, there's a similar resonance there. Um, from the time of his conversion, Johnson became an active member of the Catholic life of the capital, uh, frequenting Alice Minnell's salon and giving lectures for the CTS. His tally of three books for the Bodley Head would have been greater had it not been for the delays which uh, afflicted that publishing house as it divided into John Lane and Elkin Matthews, delays which cost posterity at least one volume of, select of selected essays, proffered by Johnson uh, but never published. Sadly, the most significant development of the second half of the decade was the encroaching ill health, possibly brought on by his drinking habits. His production declined from 1897 he was repeatedly bedridden in 98, 01, and 02 with what he described as gout and influenza. And by the way, the symptoms are similar to gout. Uh, so um, where I think Murray Pittock, uh, Professor Murray Pittock, uh, rather mocks this uh, idea that um, Johnson was suffering from gout. It is possible that he had gout in addition to uh, the stroke, which was the cause of his eventual death. Um, on September 29th, 1902, uh, he left his rooms in Clifford's Inn, uh, looking very ill, and crossed Fleet Street to the Green Dragon Inn, where he collapsed shortly after sitting down. 
striking his head on the table as he fell. He was taken unconscious to St. Bart's Hospital, where he remained in a coma until he died on the 4th of October, having received, received the last rites of the church. The autopsy ascribed uh, 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 his death to a stroke, which may have been the result of years of alcoholic abuse. Um, today, if Johnson is remembered at all as opposed chiefly for the Dark Angel and by the statue of King Charles at Charing Cross. In fact, there are easily 20 or 30 pages worth of memorable poems comparable with the best work of his contemporaries or the major moderns um, in Johnson's case. And uh, we're running short of time, but when I've finished, um, if we do have time, I'll read you uh, one or two. Um, you can go on. I haven't, I haven't got much to say in the next slot. So. Okay. Um, so, um, well, shall I, maybe, maybe now's a good time then. Uh, so uh, why don't we have a look at one or two of, uh, of those poems. Does anyone here know any of Johnson's poems at all? No. No, yeah. nobody. Yes, Statue of King Charles, yes. Statue of King Charles, okay, so, um, well, let's see, for instance, uh, the Dark Angel is, is, is the last... Um, his his uh, King Charles poem is extremely well known on, among the Society of King Charles the Martyr. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, okay, I'll try to find... Uh, um, the uh, Dark Angel, just a moment. Um, uh, where is it now? Just a second. Um, Was it not he who wrote about Oscar Wilde? I hate you with a necessary hate. Necessary hate, yes. Although yes, he just, yes. he, 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 the, the, the Wilde wasn't addressed in the published version. Mm. Um, uh, it was addressed to, and then there's a, a, there's a dash, a long dash. But yes. he confirmed privately that it was intended for Wilde, yes. Um, uh, he blamed Wilde for destroying Douglas's character as, as he saw it, anyway. Um, um, that was also picked up uh, and stolen by Graham Greene in The End of the Affair. This uh, is a diary of hate. Right. Um, so, all right, there's the Dark Angel. Um, Dark Angel with thine aching lust to rid the world of penitence. Malicious angel, who still dost my soul such subtle violence. Because of thee, no thought, no thing abides for me undesecrate, dark angel ever on the wing, who never reachest me too late. When music sounds, then changest thou its silvery to a sultry fire, nor will thine envious heart allow delight untortured by desire. Through thee, the gracious muses turn to furies, O mine enemy, and all the things of beauty burn with flames of evil ecstasy. Because of thee, the land of dreams becomes a gathering place of fears, until tormented slumber seems one vehemence of useless tears. When sunlight glows upon the flowers or ripples down the dancing sea, thou with thy troop of passionate powers beleaguerest, bewilderest me. Within the breath of autumn woods, within the winter silences, Thy venomous spirit stirs and broods, O master of impieties. The ardor of red flame is thine, and thine the steely soul of ice. Thou poisonest the fair design of nature with unfair device. Apples of ashes golden bright, waters of bitterness how sweet, O banquet of a foul delight prepared by thee, dark paraclete. Thou art the whisper in the gloom, the hinting tone, the haunting laugh, 
Thou art the adorner of my tomb, the minstrel of mine epitaph. I fight thee in the holy name, yet what thou dost is what God saith. Tempter, should I escape thy flame, thou wilt have helped my soul from death. The second death that never dies, that cannot die when time is dead. Live death, wherein the soul, the lost soul cries eternally uncomforted. Dark angel with thine aching lust, of two defeats, of two despairs, less dread a change to drifting dust than thine eternity of cares. Do what thou wilt, thou shalt not so dark angel triumph over me. Lonely unto the lone I go, divine to the divinity. That's the most famous of Johnson's poems. Um, and of course, of course, that one accords quite well with uh, the association of Johnson with the decadence. Um, but it's, it's not it's not one of the most characteristic in terms of the number of different kinds of poems Johnson wrote. Um, then uh, it might be worth also uh, reading um, another one of the reasonably well-known, uh, one or two actually. Um, there's, uh, uh, Johnson was a very gifted comic poet, uh, which isn't much remembered. Um, so there's a, uh, a poem um, making fun of the Pan-Anglican Synod. I think he wrote this at the time when he was still an Anglican, um, uh, but on his way to Catholicism. Uh, where is it now? Uh, just a moment. I know how to find it. Hang on a second. Um, here it is, yes, Lambeth Lyric. Some seven score bishops late at Lambeth sat, gray-whiskered and respectable debaters, each had on a well-strung curly hat and each wore gaiters. And when these prelates at their talk had been long time, they made yet longer proclamations, saying, these creeds are childish, both Nicene and Athanasian. And true, they were written by the Holy Ghost, so to rewrite them were perhaps a pity. Refer we their revision to a most select committee. In 10 years time, we wise Pan-Anglicans once more around this Anglo-Catholic table will meet to prove God's words more weak than man's, his truth less stable. So saying, homeward the good fathers go up Mississippi some and some up Niger. For thine old mantle they have clearly no more use, Elijah. Instead an apostolic apron girds their loins which ministerial fingers tie on and Babylon songs they sing, new tune and words all over Zion. The creeds and scriptures, all the faith of old, they hack and hew to please each bumptious German Windy and vague as mists and clouds that fold Tabor and Hermon. Happy establishment in this thine hour. Behold thy bishops to their seas retreating. Have at the faith, each cries. Goodbye till our next merry meeting. So beyond that, uh, there's the, let's see, Age of a Dream is quite well known. Yes. Um, the Age of a Dream, imageries of dreams reveal a gracious age, black armor, falling lace, and altar lights at morn. The courtesy of saints, their gentleness and scorn, lights on an earth more fair than shone from Plato's page. The courtesy of knights, fair calm and sacred rage, the courtesy of love, sorrow for love's sake born. Vanished those high conceits, desolate and forlorn, we hunger against hope for that lost heritage. Gone now the carven work, ruined the golden shrine. 
no more the glorious organs pour their voice divine. No more rich frankincense drifts through the holy place. Now from the broken tower what solemn bell still tolls, mourning what piteous death. Answer, O saddened souls, who mourn the death of beauty and the death of grace. That's a sonnet. He wrote a number of sonnets uh, rather similar to, to that as well. Um, now, perhaps on with uh, the talk. Um, Johnson's poet... Uh, just, just before you do that, I, I yes. want to remind everybody, uh, 1896 was when Anglican orders were declared null and void. So this was the background in which he wrote that, that delightful poem about the Lambeth meeting. Lambeth um, meeting. I, I'm probably the only one who's the who's a, a convert from Anglicanism here. Ah. So all you cradle Catholics, I thought I'd fill that in for you. Thank you. About why it's so funny. <laughs> so, um, so let's see, uh, thank you. Uh, Johnson's poetry has an unusually wide range of themes, po poems of culture and history, Celtic poems, poems of spiritual struggle, mystical poems, even comic poems. His style throughout these genres it is, is idiosyncratic and instantly recognizable, a compound of tradition and eccentricity it is one of the decadent elements in his poetic persona. Um, the eccentric, the eccentric, eccentricity is, 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 is seen, was seen generally as a, a characteristic of the decadence by the decadence themselves. Um, stylistic as well as personal eccentricity. Um, the voice too is striking. A unique, intense persona speaks clearly, eloquently, intimately to the reader. The effect is sometimes uncanny. Its literary topics, its verses of religious anxiety, its classical decorousness give it a distinct flavor. And there's always a power of subdued passion in Johnson's poetry. Deep wells of brooding covered by fastidious grace, his anguish exacerbated by his strong religious belief and his homosexuality. Uh, there is an exaltation and the strange mingling of passion and aloofness of melancholy and triumph. At its best, the claims that can be made for Johnson's poetry are not insubstantial. Uh, he influenced Yeats, Eliot, and Pound, the great triumvirate of modern poets. Their, their styles are very different from his own, and he and his work are crucial to their signature poems, The Second Coming, Hugh Selwyn Morbilly, The Hollow Man, and Four Quartets. Um, yeah, it's, it's worth mentioning, I think, that in The Second Coming, for example, which I suppose some of you probably know, the Yeats poem. Um, do, you, do you know that poem? Yes. Most, most of you? Yes. Um, so, uh, where is it now? Um, uh, where is it, where is it, where is it, whether it's, uh, um, uh, never find these things that I need, here it is, okay, 158, yeah, turning and turning, um, in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. This, this, this vision of the, the well, the, the, the subject matter itself is, is actually quite Johnsonian, but the line, the, the ceremony of innocence is drowned, is extremely Johnsonian. It's, it, it's almost an echo, direct echo of Johnson. We had it last year. There was a talk last year by David Daintree on can the center hold? Right, and the answer is not at the moment, presumably. Exactly. Um, uh, so, um, uh, let us leave the last words on his poetry with Paul Elmer Moore for Russell Kirk, the greatest of American critics, 
who held Johnson in the highest esteem, acclaiming, acclaiming his sternly idealized sorrow, well-knit with intellectual fiber and unconquerable will. It is good to read such poetry, he wrote. There is a foundation in it of consolation, and which of us in our passage through the world does not need consolation? And we drink from it the refreshment of a great courage. In prose, Johnson had a critical mind of the caliber of Eliot, but far more Catholic in its tastes, with a small c, that is to say. In other words, John, uh, Eliot, and especially Pound, I mean, in Pound's case, this is very obvious, um, disliked quite a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, as it were, canonical writing. And Eliot came to revise some of these criticisms. But for example, at one stage, Eliot seemed to be willing to throw Goethe overboard virtually completely. Um, I seem to remember he said something like, Goethe dabbled in, in philosophy, poetry, and, and science, and didn't really make a, a good job of any of them, or something along those lines. And he later apologized for that to the Goethe Society and so on, but he, he said it. And, and his first essay on Milton was extremely negative. And, and he also was very dismissive uh, relatively early in his career as a critic of, of George Meredith. And again, he sort of retracted that. And so early on, at least, Eliot was, was sort of throwing quite a lot of, of, of people overboard. And Pound was always throwing people overboard, uh, including some of Eliot's uh, favorites like John Dryden. Pound was, wasn't interested in Dryden and um, Pound, Pound attacked probably as much of the canon as he was, you know, more of the canon than he was willing to defend. Um, so um, uh, John, <laughs> Johnson doesn't do that. He, he's, uh, he, he accepts the canon more or less uh, as, as it stood. Um, but, um, he deplored cruelty and bigotry as much as cultural parochialism and slovenly writing. Uh, yet this lover of Charles I and the common people of Ireland was capable of doing justice to the virtues of Oliver Cromwell. He was also free from the early Eliot's strong literary and intellectual prejudices, which the Anglo-American laureate harnessed to a program of radical reform, ranging from sensibility to the technique of verse. In carrying through his enormously stimulating campaign, Eliot sacrificed a good deal of truth and helped inflict damage on the canon from which it has only recently begun to recover. Later, after his conversion and having achieved his ends and an unassailable position in the world of letters, Eliot was somewhat ruthly to acknowledge this and to criticize the critic, for example, his late essay. Um, nevertheless, I mean, and to criticize the critic, Eliot, Eliot sort of, uh, he says something to the effect that it, it would probably have been best for him never to have written on, on certain poets with whom he didn't have any sympathies than to have written the sort of thing that he did. Um, so, uh, um, Nevertheless, a stubborn Machiavellian stain remains on Eliot's early work for those familiar with his methods. Um, Johnson, I mean, Eliot used to write, for example, letters to the Criterion's editor, um, uh, siding with Edmund Goss and complaining about the sort of radical character of, of, um, of the Criterion in such a way as to make, to make uh, more conservative men of letters look ridiculous. I mean, he was writing these letters himself under pseudonyms and so forth. Uh, so, um, Johnson, Nefes, the magazine he was editing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, Johnson, Johnson had no program. His critical work is neither controversial nor revisionist. As such, it is neither as exciting nor as historically significant as Eliot's, but it possesses an integrity, an equipoise, and timelessness which are compensation enough. Um, it is both before and beyond its time and reminds one of Dryden and Dr. Johnson on the one hand, the later Eliot on the other. From a literary point of view, the greatest tragedy of Johnson's early death is probably the loss of finished essays and studies. <clears throat> it is unlikely that he would have written poems more beautiful or powerful than The Dark Angel by the Statue of Charing Cross or The Morpheth Cycle, uh, which is a cycle of lyrics written to this 
Welsh, uh, um, female Welsh figure called Morfydd. Um, but we might easily have had a great organized body of literary criticism to stand beside that of Eliot, which is where his work rightly belongs. One of the most daunting and imperative tasks I set myself when I was composing the anthology was the attempt to rescue this achievement through the selection and arrangement of the essays and passages from his vast uncollected oeuvre. There, there are quite a few essays of Johnson's which have never been collected. Uh, I mean, not, not, sorry, never been identified. There's tons of Johnson which hasn't been collected. I, I, I've, I've seen probably about, I don't know, maybe probably something like 2,000 pages worth of Johnson prose which has never been collected, or 1,500 pages anyway, for instance. Uh, and we had to rescue what we eventually printed by just uh, going to the newspaper archives and printing off old copies from the microfiche of the Academy and the Daily Chronicle and Pall Mall Gazette and so on, and anti-Jacobin. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, and this experienced critic can honestly report that his astonishment in reading through some 3,000 pages of articles and reviews, he remained delighted, instructed, stimulated, and moved throughout. In literary and cultural essays, I have never enjoyed better company. <clears throat> As Ezra Pound remarked of the posthumous collection of Johnson's essays, post-Luminium, this, this uh, is Johnson's only well, there are two actually, there's a much smaller edition, but there's also this, this is the main collection of Johnson's essays that was published. It was published posthumously, um, selected by his friend, the uh, American poetess, Louise Imogen Guinea. Um, as um, Pound remarked of this collection, even so small a collection as Lionel Johnson's post-luminium might save a man from utter barbarity, quote, unquote. Um, there was one, one, one other point I, I, I especially wanted to make, as just as time is presumably ru finally running out. Um, uh, sort of two, two pronged thing. One, with regards to decadence, in, in Eliot's notes towards the definition of culture, which perhaps some of you know, I don't know, it's a very, very interesting and stimulating book. Um, near the beginning, Eliot writes, um, uh, he says, uh, nevertheless, we can distinguish, we can distinguish between higher and lower cultures. We, we can distinguish between advance and retrogression. We can assert with some confidence that our own period is one of decline, that the standards of culture are lower than they were 50 years ago, and that the evidences of this decline are visible in every department of human activity. He wrote that in 1947, 48, okay, 1948. So the implication of that is, is absolutely clear that he's referring to the standards of culture uh, being clear, clearly higher in every department of human activity in, in his culture, in our culture, in 1898. In other words, in the period of the decadence that we're looking at right now. Um, and I think that's one of Eliot's sly little oblique references, because Eliot liked making references that weren't always easy to pick up. I believe he liked to make them anyway. He certainly does make them. Um, and I think he, he, he took a certain pleasure in, in leaving these traces occasionally that were hints for those who, who could follow him uh, as to some of what perhaps he was thinking. And he, 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 he liked sometimes, I think, um, to indicate that he had a little bit more respect for some authors who uh, uh, some of Eliot's younger contemporaries, I think, uh, assumed he didn't like or didn't respect by one or two sort of casual remarks he might have made. But in any case, however one might read that uh, or interpret that, um, uh, the motives behind uh, the, uh, um, well, that, that may or may not exist, uh, Eliot was referring to the 1890s. And in that respect, uh, it's worth pointing out 
that um, uh, if we're looking at, let's say, Johnson, Lionel Johnson in the 1890s, he can be seen, in fact, as an anti-decadent figure because um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the essence of, of, of decadence, really, is the idea of a decaying or a declining culture and some of the interesting side effects it has. Uh, a, a culture in decay is sometimes quite fascinating. It, 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 it's stylistically rather odd and peculiar and um, fun to look at, but it's not healthy. Uh, it's something which is tending towards decomposition and death. Um, and in that respect, uh, the period that Eliot is writing in, the 1940s, at the time of that particular passage, is one in greater decline and therefore implicitly in greater decadence than that of the 1890s. And since Johnson's work as a critic was constantly um, to try to maintain high standards, as Pound pointed out, that Johnson was uh, Johnson uh, regarded um, uh, slovenly writing as, as being a deplorable thing. He was constantly uh, trying to um, urge for the uh, the higher standards of to the raising of standards of writing and of reading, for example. Um, that in that respect, one can see Johnson, in fact, as a figure opposed to the decadence. Uh, and um, the final point I, I would like to make is a, is a sort of appeal uh, in, in, in whatever small way it's possible to make it, um, that uh, obviously in a certain sense, Johnson is a decadent writer. He wrote some poems which, are, which can be read as, a decadent, as decadent poems or which illustrate the, his personal tragedy, which, which can be read in, in decadent terms. So one could see, let's say, Johnson as a casualty um, of, of a complicated decade uh, associated with, with this and, and whose, some of whose poems illustrate this, this catastrophe, this personal catastrophe. Uh, also, obviously, he was very, very close to uh, some of the figures most closely associated in turn with the decadence. He was a good friend of uh, Douglas. He was a friend of Wilde, at least for a while. Uh, he was fairly close to Aubrey Beardsley. He certainly was on friendly terms with Beardsley. Uh, and he witnessed all of this and he participated in the Yellow Book and he participated in the Savoy and so on. Um, but, uh, and, uh, and therefore some of his poetry can be read within the context of, of the decadent movement um, as, as decadent, as, as, as part of the furniture of the decadence. Um, but I think it's more fruitful to look at Johnson um, in terms, as, as a man of letters, really, rather than simply the author of a handful of decadent poems. Um, and uh, I think that um, if one insists on reading him as a decadent, one cuts away most of the most interesting work he produced, including in poetry. Not all of it, but most of it. Um, and it would be more fruitful, really, to look at Johnson within the company of people like Chesterton, Belloc, Knox, Baring, Francis Thompson, um, within the context of the Catholic literary revival, but also including the, the Anglican figures who participated, like, like Lewis and T.S. Eliot, for example, and Charles Williams, um, and other Catholic figures who are, who are themselves, in many respects, close to Eliot, like Christopher Dawson. Uh, that if one looks at him within this particular context, uh, he has more to offer, right the way down to David Jones and, and so on. Um, another Anglo-Welsh uh, poet, uh, although rather a, a different one from Lionel Johnson. Um, I think this is where he has most to offer. I think this is where Johnson's most interesting. Um, and uh, I think that um, uh, 
the the work he was involved in um, in it was uh, essentially um, connected to the great tradition, uh, which is to say the great tradition of Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian culture, including the Middle Ages and the Baroque, um, including uh, the Byzantine uh, contribution. Um, and uh, as, as, our, as part of our larger Western patrimony. Um, and uh, that this particular tradition sees this patrimony as alive philosophically and religiously and theologically as well as aesthetically. So it's relevant, it's not just beautiful. Mm. Alive and kicking, it has something to give us. And when we read these authors, Eliot and, and, and Dawson, for example, and David Jones, and I would maintain Lionel Johnson, they help us to see this patrimony and tradition more, more, more vividly, to initiate us, if you like, into the range and dimension of this tradition. And this is very far from a decadent venture. So uh, I think this is where, um, in fact, Johnson has most to offer. And I think this is where a potential revival of interest in Johnson is most likely to take place. So. Thank you, thank you very much, Robert. It's been very, very, very interesting, especially for people perhaps who weren't weren't that aware of Johnson's contribution. So, uh, thank you very much. And I don't know. We probably don't have any time for questions, but if if we do, I'm happy to take any. 